All right, hello and welcome to another edition of New York Update. We're online at nyupdate.org and we stream live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. at rocklandworldradio.com. My name is Jake Jacobs, a New York City school teacher and education activist. I'm going to update a couple of issues uh, from last week, and then we're going to get into an interview with Patricia Gunning, who is running for district attorney here in Rockland County. When last we left off, we spoke about a new lawsuit uh, launched against Success Academy. There has been really big news in the charter school world, and the really big news is that uh, Bernie Sanders has come out uh, with a ban on for-profit charter schools and a bunch of reforms that would basically end, if he was to be elected, would end all federal funding for charter schools. And that's major. So this is the first presidential candidate to really go out that far against charter schools. And he also name-checked the NAACP moratorium on charter schools, which is a national moratorium that was announced uh, right after the 2016 election. So he has endorsed and, and he will be supporting the NAACP moratorium on charter schools and promises if he's elected that he would put a whole bunch of new restrictions and oversight on charter schools in all 50 states. Now, he would not have the power to prevent states from funding charter schools at the state level or the district level, but to cancel all federal funding and make charter schools accountable to a national audit is a huge step. And so you can bet that the charter school industry wants to prevent Bernie from getting the nomination. They have already um, responded to Bernie's proposal playing the race card. Uh, They say that it's typical of Bernie to be out of touch with black voters, which I'm not sure is true this time around, but they're trying to say, uh, they're citing data that says that uh, white respondents to polls are more likely to be against charter schools than uh, African Americans. And they're trying to kind of like manufacture a divide. Remember, this is the charter school industry. So uh, this is really big. Diane Ravitch was consulted directly by Bernie Sanders' campaign. And she was actually on the phone with the author of Bernie's proposal for hours, talking about not just charter schools, but a whole education plan, a 10-point education plan. We have some more reaction to Bernie Sanders here. There's actually been a media roundup already of the responses. The New York Times had a piece out, and CNN had a piece out, Common Dreams had a piece out, Raw Story had a piece out, and a Jersey Jazzman, who is an education blogger from Jersey and a great guy, has done a roundup of the media coverage so far, and he's commented that everybody's getting it wrong. Charter schools aren't usually in the news. And so uh, Bernie's new announcement is putting it in the news. You know, some people call it Overton's window. And Jersey Jasmine is complaining about the coverage, saying that they're just basically Googling a bunch of studies that are misleading, including a very famous credo study. There's a lot more to the charter school issue than you can just find in a five-minute Google. So, you know, he's calling out laziness, and he's calling out incomplete and incorrect coverage by all of these press outlets. Okay, so we're going to go over the other points in Bernie's plan uh, next week or the week after. We'll be talking a lot more about uh, a couple of other things that Bernie proposes for education writ large, and we'll get into some more specifics about his charter school proposal because now it's going to kind of push the other candidates to respond. And we've been trying to track all the candidates' charter school proposals. Even though there's 22 candidates, this will definitely shake things up. Another big story since last week was Commissioner Mary Ellen Elia. A group of groups, um, actually a bunch of Rockland County grassroots groups have uh, contacted the New York State Board of Regents and they're complaining that Commissioner Elia is not moving fast enough or she's not moving efficiently enough in the case of the yeshivas that do not provide basic uh, math, English, social studies, science, civics, history. And so a journal news piece detailed how Rockland Can and Rockland United and Yafed and Rockland Against the New Jim Crow, a bunch of these groups have asked for the Board of Regents to step in and issue emergency orders on the upcoming Board of Regents meeting, which is going to be June 3rd and 4th, because... 
uh, Mary Ellen Ilya hasn't gotten the job done. The big lawsuit that the state lost on a technicality, they didn't argue the merits, leaves it where the state has to either refile and correct the defects or the Board of Regents can actually er issue emergency orders. So this is about the yeshivas that refuse to be inspected, that keep opening and closing and playing, you know, whack-a-mole games. And they're basically flouting the law that all schools that receive state and federal funding have to provide a substantially equivalent education to public schools. And that still isn't happening. So new pressure on the chancellor and new pressure on the Board of Regents on that front. Finally, the opt-out bill. We wanted to update the uh, bill that was introduced by uh, Robert Jackson in the Senate and co-sponsored by Jessica Ramos. Now, last week, we played our interview of Harvey Epstein, the assemblyman who introduced the companion bill in the assembly, and that has a number now. It's easy to remember. It's a, it's A7744. So this is the bill that would uh, make all school districts and all schools notify parents that they have the right to opt out of the standardized tests every year uh, in math and ELA, and then there's also 8th grade and 4th grade tests in science. And so parents across the state have taken action. NYSAPE, uh, New York State Allies for Public Education, of whom I am a member, put out a take action form that automatically contacts your, se your state senator and your state assembly member. And over a thousand parents have done that so far and sent notices to their elected officials saying that they support this bill and can it please have a vote in the Senate Education Committee and the Assembly Education Committee and I'm not sure when that would be. If you're like me, you support the right for parents to opt out, you could also take action. Go to nysape.org and look up the issues and take action. Over a thousand respondents now and we are going to be following up, I'm going to be following up personally with uh, David Carlucci, Ken Zabrowski, Ellen Jaffe, uh, James Skoufis, and all the elected officials that I can possibly reach to see if they also support or don't support the bill. All right, so with that, we are going to transition into our interview, and here we are pleased to have candidate for district attorney here in Rockland County, Patricia Gunning. I have seen Patricia speak maybe two different places. We have an interesting race. This is a Democratic primary, and we're just about finished now with the petitioning, although there are some appeals going on right now. And so maybe that's where we can start is uh, the petitioning, because Patricia, you just finished the petitioning process. And you had a couple of comments about the process, and uh, I was mentioning to you the ordeal that Kat Bresler was going through, which we spoke about on the show last week. There's an article in The Intercept, and the petitioning process seems really unfair to candidates that don't have like a bajillion dollars and a lot of spare time. So start, start us out on that. What were your thoughts about, about just getting on the ballot in this race? Sure. Getting on the ballot was a real um, experience, certainly a learning experience. And I did read the article uh, about Kat's case and it really, you know, I, I feel her pain, I <laughs> guess is the best way to say it. You know, that said, we did uh, make it through the process. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about the process. We could probably do a whole show on that. I do know that um, I, what I have now know about the petition process is that it can be part of the process. Um, it doesn't have to be. It's a choice that uh, my opponent made or one of my opponents made. So it doesn't have to be. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, what I learn, learned through this process is that in certainly in talking to people and the many people who we had to contact who came out, who came to court to testify, who signed affidavits late at night, um, that they, they want uh, the opportunity to choose who they want in a race. And they don't want to be... Uh, told who they're going to vote for uh, by the wealthier or, or you know, the, the, the establishment party the, yeah. candidate. So right. I really think it, it did not, uh, you know, obviously they didn't prevail. Judge Altieri mm -hmm. is off, off the ballot for now. He's uh, appealing. Mm -hmm. So he, uh, I believe, is in court tomorrow. Um, but look, I'm happy to be on the ballot. Mm -hmm. uh, we made it through. Um, yeah, but it cost the campaign. It was, um, you know, it, it's I don't want to say. Enormous it, sums of money. It was, uh, <laughs> it cost the campaign. You know, I've been working hard to raise money. I'm an, I'm the 
outside the political arena candidate. I'm the non-politician in the race. So raising money for me, uh, you know, has is hard work. It you know may be easier for people who've who've been doing that for a while and who have a political machine behind them. Um, so you know it was tough because my campaign you know spent some of that hard-earned uh, money, uh, my just supporters' money on something that was really specious, in my opinion. And so just to clear things up, this is um, all of the potential candidates turn in their petitions, and then there are legal challenges, and a lot of these are just perfunctory, compulsory. They're just like automatic. If you have a well-funded opponent, it's actually incumbent upon the candidate to proactively go and prove, you know, and verify the signatures, provide affidavits. The, uh, you know, the judge will give a certain number that they have to hit, and then they have to they have to proactively go around and get all these signatures. I know that's what Kat Bresler has been doing like crazy. She's a school teacher, you know, and so she has to be in school on Monday morning, you know, like me. And so, you know, it's really hard to do that. And then there's also these incredible fees or these uh, court costs or you know filing fees and what have you. Yeah transcript fees. Um, so, you know, it's really tough. I mean, you know, it's like an obstacle course, mm-hmm. but you did get through. I did. And it was, and it was, it was a pretty close call. They were, they were able to challenge a number of signatures that we all know were right. But, and this is, this is a cautionary tale to anybody that does petitioning like I do, is you got to watch the person signing and make sure that they're, you know, not putting like a weird date or writing in the wrong place or writing the town in the wrong, you know, place. I mean, because it can just invalidate and just waste so much time. So, you know, you really have to be careful when you're getting those signatures in the first place to watch where the person's signing, what they're signing, you know, have everything done just right. Otherwise, perfectly good page of signatures can be just thrown out, you know, just because of a date being wrong or, you know, somebody crossed something out or somebody used whiteout or somebody spilled coffee. I mean, and, but that's the system. So. Right. And I think it's important to know, like, in not in my case, as was is the case for Kat, the, you know, this was not based on fraud. There weren't allegations that there were signatures that were fraudulent. It's like you said, the the allegations were, you know, gee, that the loop on that J doesn't match, you know, the signature card. And then you go back and you look at that voter, and that voter may have signed that signature card in 1967. Right. And they're now 86 years old. Yes. And their signatures change. Right. Everybody's so, signature changes. Right. My signature has changed because you sign things your whole life, and you just get much faster. It just becomes like a little blur okay. over time, and that's normal. I mean, that's the average person, you know, is does not sit there and, like, slowly write their name in legible cursive every single time. So, you know, especially if you're like, you know, out in the sun or in the rain or in the cold in this this case, you know, and people want to close that door and get back into the couch, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, it's been interesting to learn about this process because we're going to have next year and the year after and the year after. And so this process did knock out, for now at least, Alfieri. Right. And what about Dietrich? Is Dietrich still in? Uh, D- uh, Dietrich did not is, uh, submit signatures uh, f- to run on the Democratic line. So my understanding is he cl- he's collecting um, his own signatures and is hoping to run um, uh, Oh, some kind of third party line. Oh, interesting. Okay. So let's get a little bit into the race. District Attorney, the current District Attorney, Zugabi, is stepping down to take a position, a judge Sure. Ju- yeah. Uh, yeah, Tom Zugabi has already moved on to, this, to the Supreme Court. Court. He's okay. uh, in Putnam now. Um, okay. So the office is being run by the, an acting district attorney named Kevin Galise, who's been with the office for uh, a number of years. Okay. And in this race, uh, it's Patricia, and you are an experienced prosecutor. I am. And you're going up against Ken Zab- in the Democratic primary, Ken Zabrowski, who has been the my assemblyman for 10 years. Mm-hmm. He's an experienced assembly member. Uh, you know, that's more kind of like the political side of things. He is a lawyer, but his practice, you know, obviously he's been an assemblyman, so he, his... You know, his experience in the courtroom and his experience, you know, and actually nuts and bolts, you know, casework, obviously, you know, has taken a backseat to his political work. Mm-hmm. The other candidate is uh, Walsh. It's a uh, uh, first name is Thomas. Tom, Tom Walsh. Tom Walsh. Now, I don't know too much about him because I haven't heard him speak at all of the grassroots forums and all the, these Democratic meetings. But I know that he has been cross-endorsed by the Republican Party in Rockland County. 
And I know he is also the preferred candidate of the uh, Hasidic community. Is, is that a definite or? I, I can't say for sure, but that's the rumor. Right. That's But that's been the rumor is that he's the preferred candidate. And that's likely why the Republicans kind of saw, you know, maybe that advantage. So Walsh, even if he loses the Democratic primary, will be on the ticket in November as the Republican nominee. Yes, and as a conservative. Right, so he'll be, he'll be on multiple lines. And so he's got, you know, an opportunity now to make, you know, make his name known in this race uh, in the Democratic primary. I know people might think it's ridiculous, but this actually happens. There are people that run Democrat and Republican at the same time, and nobody seems to mind. I, you know, to me, that seems like cats and dogs. You know, it doesn't, it just, something's up with that. But, uh, you know, it's happening here. And just, you know, handicap the race. It's a, is it a three-way race? There's no polling. So, like, anything can happen at this point? Sure. Yeah, I'm not going to handicap the race. But what I'll tell you is why I am the best candidate for district attorney. You know, Ken Zabrowski has been an assemblyman. And uh, by all accounts, he's a nice guy. But this is, you know, one of the things that I've found when I've been going out and talking to people is that people don't really have a clear understanding of what the district attorney in this county does and what the charge of the district attorney is. Mm -hmm. The district attorney's job is to enforce the law as it is and to use sound uh, both discretion and uh, and in enforcing the law and making decisions about how we uh, how we prosecute cases and it's a it's a skill set that you develop over years of practicing it's not something you jump into and you learn overnight so um, my understanding and he can correct it if I'm wrong is he's never litigated a case not any case not a criminal case nor a civil case and being a litigator is important knowing what happens in court knowing how to evaluate a case knowing what the expectations are um, from the court, from your victim, making sure you're talking to your victim, making sure the victim's wishes are being accounted for in your prosecution, making sure that the defendant's situation is being adequately uh, evaluated when you're determining whether or not you plead that case or whether or not it's going right. to go to trial. So this is not a job you learn on your feet. Okay, right. it's like that's like flying a plane and trying to put it together at the same time. I know that old so, expression, but yeah. What about so? What about the argument? Well, you have a, an assistant DA that does all that kind of work, and you're just kind of like running the whole office, you know, like like taking phone calls and, and stuff like that. I mean, I'm sure that's what people would say, you know, is that um, you know you have a lot of help. You can hire very experienced people to keep things continuous. And um, I understand, you know, that in your position, you're coming in with that experience. But the the other part of this is that this is an election where name recognition is so important. And that's where, you know, Ken has been out in the, you know, in the ether for a long time. Sure. I have a couple of things to say about that. One is that the job of the district attorney is not just to, to be aware of what's going on in court and knowing uh, about criminal cases and how to deal with them. But as a leader, when you lead a staff of 55 people, 31 of them being legal professionals, they need to look to you and to your vision and to your expertise and, and know that when you tell them you want something done in a case, you know why. And they know why you're suggesting it. It's all about having vision. And you, you know, the idea that this is a policy job, I've heard uh, Ken say that, I've heard some of the supporters say that this is not a policy job. This is a job where you're on your feet evaluating cases and your staff has to respect your expertise and your own command of the law. That's how you lead. You know, there was a, a, a race in Philadelphia where a progressive prosecutor was elected. And one of the struggles that he articulates in an article that I read about him, it's in Philadelphia, was the difficulty with getting staff on board and getting staff to see his vision for the office. It's going to be incredibly important here in Rockland County. We haven't had a district attorney elected, a new district attorney in almost 12 years. Right. Right. So they're going to be set in their ways. Yeah. So it's time to shake up the office to, and and to have, you know, Coming in as a policymaker is very different than coming in as a person who's gone up through the ranks with the same folks that you'd be managing. And also, you know, bringing young prosecutors, newer prosecutors in and aligning them with your vision because criminal justice has changed a lot over the years. Mm-hmm. You know, there it's, it's a very different world now. But I don't believe and I feel really strongly about this. This is not a policy job and it's not a job that you can learn, you know, uh, on, on day the, one. On the, fly, right? um, the other thing I want to say, though, that 
that's very important about experience is that you're also, you know, when you say you come in and you have a lot of people working for you and that's just great. Um, so they, they'll do the job, right? Um, <laughs> autopilot. Yeah, it's not an autopilot job. <laughs> and the other thing is, you know, one of the things I did at the New York State Justice Center was I built a staff of litigators and prosecutors from the ground up. I managed a large legal staff. I managed 55 investigators, uh, prosecutors, and other litigators. You know, so I know how to work with people, how to how to build a team, and how to keep that team uh, in line with the vision that we create together. And that's something he doesn't have. So, nor so, does Judge Walsh, by the way. Right, and so, and and I, and I want to I want to ask you about that. Well, uh, you know, this is this is a New York suburb, New York City suburb. A lot of this stuff flies under the radar. I know this is why I do the show. I'm I'm I've been learning, and I hope other people are learning to you know uh, to to educate people on the issues so that you can make a, a, a decision. We've spoken about the the big difference in experience and the type of experience that you have versus Ken Zabrowski. What would you say the, the biggest difference you know in the the bread and butter issues would be? Is are there really big differences between you and Ken or you and Tom Walsh? Like, what would you say the the biggest difference? I think anyone who who takes on the role of district attorney in Rockland County has to start on day one tackling the corruption problem in our county. We have a major crisis uh, with regard to corruption, public corruption, and it's at every level. So I've heard them talking about picking off sort of what I call low hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. You know, going after zoning violations. That stuff is really important. I think it's really important, but it's not the only thing we need to be doing. We need to be hitting it from the top um, because this corruption in our county has been allowed to grow and fester for unchecked for years. And it's, you know, you can't just pick off uh, some of the lower level violators without really getting to the root of it and, and really doing large, wide scale investigations where you're ferreting out the root causes of it. So let's talk about uh, Zugabi then. You know, has has Zugabi undertaken some of that work? I know that the Christopher St. Lawrence scandal was kind of like a, I think it was like a federal uh, jurisdictional thing. Or yeah. maybe maybe you can just inform me and the listeners what the recent history of the office has been. Sure, I can't really speak. You know, obviously re I've not been in the office. I was a special prosecutor for the New York State Justice Center uh, until 2017. I left the office in 2013. Can't really comment on the internal stuff. I read the paper like you do, so mm -hmm. I've seen those prosecutions. What I do know is that in some of those prosecutions, and including the Christopher St. Lawrence one, the Rockland County DA's office was involved in the investigations, mm -hmm. and they partner with uh, federal law enforcement to bring those investigations. So those are large, long-term in-depth investigations and that's that's what it takes it takes a person uh, in that job who knows how to liaise with law enforcement who knows how to deal with other agencies and how to come up with plans so that teams can actually do the work that needs to be done that is not for a rookie <laughs> it's not that's mm -hmm. not a job for a rookie it's just not <clears throat> and and i also know that zugabi was one of the deputies of the moreland commission which is which means that uh, he would actually rule on or decide on things that were outside of Rockland County, right? Yeah, so a while back, I forget what year it was, the governor uh, put together something called the Moreland Commission, which was charged with the idea of investigating public corruption, corruption. And, and so on. Uh, and Tom Zogaby was named to that. However, um, the panel or, you know, the commission never really got to do the work because right, the governor disbanded it before or, or as they were getting closer to um, to hot, 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 topics. hot topics and <laughs> hot issues. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So, and uh, we know uh, where that went, right? So we know there were several prosecutions that came out of some of the initial work, I believe, uh, that Joe Prococo, that, that mm -hmm. was a case that came out of the the beginning of... Uh, the initial work of the Moreland Commission. Right, and he was eventually convicted yeah. and sentenced. Right, in right. Okay, so let's maybe talk about a couple of other uh, issues. Why don't we go over... Uh, Rockland County has never had a female district attorney. Right. And we are now in this Me Too uh, movement time. There's actually hearings. I see that the legislature is holding hearings on Friday, I just read. This will be the second round of hearings where anybody can go up there 
and speak to this uh, panel of legislators. And I guess there's like a commission, which is really interesting. I mean, this is like the new Democratic majority. And, you know, this is one of the promises that they were elected on. I, th I believe um, Senator Biagi is heading this up, but Ramos is involved and Salazar. What would you bring, um, you know, from the from the prism of the Me Too movement? Because, you know, Rockland County is just like everywhere else. We have issues. <laughs> yeah, we really do. Um, well, first and foremost, I, I just want to correct one thing that you said. The hearings that are going to be held are going to be in New York City this yeah, Friday. Right, right, right not, across from... Not Albany, so... Right, right across from City Hall. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I testified before the state legislature in the hearings in Albany, and if you want to oh. um, hear my testimony about my experience in Albany, um, you can do that by uh, looking up the testimony um, at hour 1031. I sat uh, for 10 hours and 31 minutes before I testified. I was the last person to testify at that hearing. That sounds like a um, marathon. And um, it was an incredibly important uh, day for me to, to be able to speak about my own experience in Albany mm -hmm. and the difficulty that individuals have, male and female, in reporting uh, harassment in the workplace and bullying and all the attendant issues to that. Um, I, you may or may not know that um, I was fired as a result of uh, challenging my boss in Albany. Um, mm -hmm. It has been very public. Um, I have been I wasn't willing to speak about it initially. It's mm -hmm. taken uh, some uh, took I'd gather my myself and gather my courage to speak up about it. It's not an easy thing to do. It's it's career risk. It's it's like jeopardy, um, right? Yeah. Well, it certainly my you know I took a real hit for it. Mm -hmm. And but that said, you know I have always been a person who stands up for what I think is right, and I have always spoken my truth regardless of the risk. Um, I have been courageous in my career, and that was an opportunity that I felt, you know, I remember saying to my staff, you know, if as the New York State Special Prosecutor and Inspector General, I can't speak up uh, in our workplace, then I really don't know who can. Right. Um, so I've displayed a, a courage around these issues. I think that um, as the first woman district attorney in Rockland County, we would work very hard to shift the culture around uh, both the DA's office and the and law enforcement culture. Right now, as you know, uh, the district attorney's office has just one person of color on staff and for the last 12 years has not had a woman in a position of leadership. There are eight executive uh, positions in the office out of 31 attorneys. Not one of them has been a woman. That needs to change. Um, I, I, someone may have been promoted a couple of months ago, but mm -hmm. but it's it's really unthinkable that that we have not it's had a, a bad woman, ratio um, <laughs> in a, in a leadership position in the DA's office, and that will change. But the the office is going to change in other ways because we're going to make sure that the office reflects the culture and and the community that we serve here in Rockland County, and it's a diverse one. The DA's office is over is is a as I said, there's only one person of color on staff right now that I'm aware of, mm -hmm. um, and we have an overwhelmingly uh, white police force in our county. So mm -hmm. I think we have work to do around educating, uh, working with uh, law enforcement to examine what our biases Sensitivity, are. Sensitivity, yeah. And learn to... You know, yesterday, right. uh, my whole school, uh, we had no students. The whole thing shut down, and every teacher and all staff, we went into an implicit bias training right. and all day long, and so I know exactly where you're coming from. Mm. The times are changing. This is something that not only affects the culture of law enforcement and a legal system but you know it's also the cases that come in too and how they're looked at and so um you know as far as maybe um seeing a change in the way cases or casework might change um, what would you see, you know, that maybe this new era would bring in? Because, you know, the ability of people to now come in and speak up more comfortably, I think, is in part due to the new Democratic majority mm -hmm. and all these women that came in, you know, that that push that they're that they're doing now. So, you know, this could affect everyday people in in important ways. Right. I know there's there's kind of like, you know, it could be anything from, uh, you know, legal disputes to domestic stuff and and so is there something in the in the casework that you'd see a big change coming well i think we have to really look at what we're doing with minor low level offenses 
offenses, including marijuana and dr low-level drug offenses, pet larceny, things like that. There's tons of cases coming out of you know the Palisades Mall. We have to take a look at and at what we're doing and how we're using our resources around those cases. Right? I, anyone who's arrested, you know, that involves the use of public resources booking a person, bringing them in, detaining them, you know, calling in a judge, bringing them into court, there's court officers, all kinds of... So we have to really rethink how we're using our resources around crimes that, you know, we really are petty and that really yeah. maybe don't deserve that type of attention when we could be shifting our resources to some of the larger issues. Especially like when the uh, disproportionate levels that we're seeing of, uh, you know, right. of enforcement on, on one race or class, you know, versus another. Right. Um, and yeah, and I, definitely. And then uh, we also have, I guess, more of a push towards restorative I guess rehabilitative consequences rather than uh, criminal charges and consequences. Yeah, and I think you have to be really creative, and yeah. you have to you have to think about what's happening in this community and how do we address it in a way that's innovative and creative, and that makes sense here. You can't just pick a program from somewhere else and and lay it down over the the you know the landscape that is Rockland County. We have to you have to get in there and figure out what are the, what's happening here. We know obviously that low level. Uh, drug offenses, including marijuana. I was just in uh, Nyack Justice Court uh, watching a, a young African-American kid be arraigned on a UPM, a, a ma marijuana case. Uh -huh. And, you know, we're very close to legalizing marijuana in, in, in this state, right? And we know that lots of folks uh, smoke marijuana in the county of Rockland, and they don't get arrested for it, right? right. So it, there is a disproportionate use of that charge uh, for, for young men of color, and and we have to stop that. It, yeah, it doesn't de make sense. Decades of private prisons across the country and in New York, the Rockefeller laws, you know, and, right. you know, hopefully we're coming out of that, but we still have a lot of people in the system and we still have a lot of inertia in the system, you know, yeah. from dealing with that for so long. We do. You know, on the marijuana thing, I think it's really important, you know, because people are focused on whether or not we legalize, do you legalize, do we not legalize, and all the, the stuff around that and what that'll ultimately mean and is that a gateway drug. What I think is it's, I think we have to accept that that's the reality that is coming and we have to prepare law enforcement to deal with the public's attendant public safety issues around it. So right now, if there's a roadside stop and someone's high, there isn't a way to test them on the scene. So I think we really need to start thinking about how do we shift the conversation toward protecting public safety when it does become legal? Because we, you know, it's really yeah. clear, the governor's yeah. made it clear that that's something that's going to happen. Yeah, there's other states that are years ahead of us. You know, the downside has been, you know, these kind of like driving incidences and, you know, stuff like that, but they're managing it. I mean, you know, there's revenue there. One of the reasons that it didn't pass in so far in this session is there was an argument over whether counties should have the right to opt out. And, and so you can be a non-recreational county. It, there, was, there was one version of a proposal where they would allow counties to opt out. And we heard rumblings that Rockland would have been or could have been one of these counties. On the other hand, if there was a DA that just said, well, I'm not going to you know, enforce these statutes or I'm, or, you know, I'm going to, you know, let certain things go by, you know, the very minor quality of life issue things go by, the DA could, you know, based on prosecutorial discretion and also their policy, mm -hmm. um, kind of set the tone for, for marijuana fractions, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, like you say, it costs taxpayers a lot of money to process one of these busts. If you're going to bring somebody downtown and they just had some weed I, I work in the Bronx. It happens every day walking down the street. Right. So. right. so the surrounding counties, you know, obviously Brooklyn, New York, the Bronx, they're not prosecuting low-level marijuana. And, you know, we need to get in step with the region that we're in. But also I told you that it's my belief that that's not the best use of our resources, that we should be shifting toward the public safety aspect right. of legalization. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, think things that really right. impact the average person, you know, it's, I mean, to me, when you compare it to alcohol, you know, somebody can't even, they're staggering and they can't even walk. It's not nearly and, as bad as that. And you know what I say to my friends is, you know, we're not prosecuting folks generally out of South Nyack or, not, you know, right? This is a this is a problem that's focused on, uh, a, you know, the black and brown community here right. in Rockland County, and it's not right. Um, but the, if the question is, would I continue to prosecute low-level marijuana offenses, the answer is I would not. I, I just think it's a waste of public resources, and I think we can we can come to those issues in a more informed way. Right. Okay, um, 
You spoke about the unique composition of Rockland. One of the things that we have here in Rockland is we have a very, very large Orthodox Jewish community. Some people say ultra-Orthodox community. You know, this has brought uh, up a couple of controversies. I report pretty regularly on the yeshiva issue, but we have the the measles outbreak issue coming up too, you know, that is really bringing attention and a spotlight. With this community, um, you know, there is a tendency when, when there is a, any involvement with law enforcement for them to kind of like circle the wagons and uh, it's hard to get, um, you know, people to, you know, say exactly what happened. They just kind of handle it all internally. Um, what do you think, what, what's your perspective as a potential DA, you know, for dealing with, uh, you know, a community that's so closed and really just has its own kind of like leadership that can, you know, really just, you know, shut down investigations, people go quiet and, and, all, and all that. I mean, have you had experience with that so far? Sure, I have. You know, I'm, as you know, uh, Jake, I'm a longtime special victims prosecutor. I've had many cases involving child sexual abuse where, uh, as you described, the wagon circled and the wheels fell off the wagon and we weren't able to prosecute um, because uh, the families at the heart of the case or the child at the heart of the case would not be available to testify. That said, I have prosecuted a number of uh, cases involving the ultra-Orthodox community here in Rockland County, um, but they are very difficult. I, I don't know. I mean, I think one of the things that troubles me about this issue is how divided it has made us as a county, and, and I don't have the answer. Um, I don't know that anyone has the answer except to say that we have to start communicating more. We have uh, in our county a very, um, appears to be, you know, lack of communication. Um, I, I struggle with the lack of reporting. I mean, someone asked me uh, a question about uh, the resources of the DA's office. You know, there is uh, the ultra-Orthodox or the, orth the Orthodox community here in Rockland. I think it represents 30,000 plus individuals, and we're not seeing uh, general crime coming out of there. So I don't know what resources would be needed if we were to have normal reporting coming out of there. But I think it is a matter of better communication, being able and willing to listen, and being able to tackle it. And, you know, as I said earlier, being a political outsider is a benefit to me in that because. I, I'm not connected to the political establishment, not to the Democratic establishment, and not to the Republican establishment. And we all wonder sort of whose fingers are in those pots, right? And, and it kind of well, looks like everybody's are, straight right? Up, straight um, up to the top. <laughs> right up to the top. So, you know, as a political, as a person who's not part of those systems, I think I bring, bring a unique uh, opportunity to challenge some of what's going on um, and encourage reporting and, you know, potentially work with the community to, to, to shift some of that. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is a, d a difficult issue. There are not, are not a lot of answers. When something does happen in New York City, we see this a lot, you know, and then things just magically go away. It goes back to, you know, the complaint about, you know, there's, there's corruption or, you know, favoritism going on. And so, you know, it's nice to see that somebody would come in with a fresh, you know, just very objective perspective on that. I guess that's the best we can hope for because, you know, things are, you know, the way they are, they are, they're right. very deeply entrenched, you know, and right. currently. And some of, as you know, Jake, a lot of the political corruption in our county is tied to to some of the around, you know, zoning issues. So some of this is intermingled, right? Mm -hmm. And so we also ha we have to attack that in our county. We have to get in there and attack it. And again, I'm all for protecting firefighters and dealing with issues related to zoning. I I am a firefighter's daughter, mm -hmm. uh, sister niece my nephew just became a firefighter so that's really important to me and i think it's really important to go after that but we really have to go after it at its root and we have to pull it out by the root uh, so you know again we're looking at low-hanging fruit with some of those other ideas around <coughs> attacking it well, let's say um you get the uh the democratic nod and then you, you head towards a, a general election against Tom Walsh. Looking ahead to that, there you would have the Republicans, you would have the quote-unquote block. I mean, you know, that really does stir passions here, you know, when elections come out. What would be your, I guess, strategy or, or tactic? 
because you know my thinking would be like all right we're in the trump era here and if it becomes you know at that stage it would be a democrat versus republican thing i don't know if that really is the same you know in a in a da race as it would be in maybe like a legislative race what's your thinking you know if you were the nominee and you headed towards the general election you know i think it's the same um argument i've made to you tonight about my other opponent ken zabrowski and that is that when people look at me as a candidate next to both of them, and if ultimately it is uh, Tom Walsh, what they see is uh, a person, myself, they see me as a person with a tremendous amount of experience, a tremendous amount of connection to the work itself, a real passion for the work, and an interest in you know, and have and a vision that involves really changing the status quo in this county and being willing to do it. You know, I, I think with no disrespect to anyone, they're both part of those machines, that my two opponents are part of those machines. So there's some of that, the idea that they're going to shake things up rings a little hollow when you've been a part of that those machines. I mean, Ken Sprowski's been, you know, an active, you know, been engaged and deeply entrenched in the party since he was 18 years old. So you know, the idea that we would bring fresh ideas and a new vision to the county, I, I think that's what's going to happen in the general. If it's if I'm up against uh, Tom Walsh, I think, you know, you're going to see a lot of talk about bringing fresh ideas, new ideas, and shaking up, uh, you know, the old boys network in this county. I mean, this is a, you know, a, a DA's office that is a white male-dominated, you know, looks like a country club here. So, you know, that's part of it, too. So a lot of attention, especially now uh, in the last week or so, is going towards the Queens DA race, where you have a self-described queer female Hispanic candidate going up against the party machine in the Democratic uh, primary. And there, you know, that's the Queen's machine, the legendary Queen's machine. I mean, I remember reading the article about the probate court and all of the corruption where they basically just, like, take dead people's money and they start giving it out to one to one another and when uh, AOC beat uh, Joe Crowley yeah. it, they said you know how many Crowleys there are in the system and they're yeah. all related I mean you know so and you know that's down in New York City there is kind of like that kind of I guess new spirit you know of a new candidate like a younger female candidate coming in to break the wheel you know and I guess it's New York City gets it gets a lot more play a lot more attention than out here in the sleepy yeah. you know suburbs but um you know maybe that's you know maybe that's how yeah, it, it, it would be we're going to do the same thing here right there's no reason that Rockland County has to stay you know in the 50s right we can shake up Rockland County just like they did in Queens and you know they've gone up they're going up against the machine that is a very very powerful machine yeah you know the the guy who's at least my understanding is the guy that's that's uh, running Ken's campaign and was part of that machine. He he's ran um, Jill Crowley's campaign. So oh. it's part of that whole mindset of, you know, keeping the machine in power. And I think people are tired of it. And I think especially here in Rockland where we just see things, you know, not changing and not really getting any better and the divide in our county becoming wider, you know, I think people are feeling what I'm feeling, which is we really do need a change. And, you know, frankly, I'm inspired by what's happening in Queens. And and I, I believe it can happen here too. Yeah, it seems it seemed like it would be a real radical difference. I remember a couple of weeks ago on Facebook, there was a very, very ugly incident involving Ed Day and his son, Chris Day. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a really hurtful post going on, and it was nasty. But one of the things, and, you know, who cares about the sexual picadillos and all the accusations? That's all people, you know, people's private business. But in the middle of that, there was accusations that Ed Day uh, steered contracts. And that was made by, at the time, you know, me, I know this was in, in the, the flames of an argument and, you know, a whole public blow-up, but that was made by his daughter-in-law? Yeah. So, I wonder, has that piqued interest? Or, you know, does that just, like, what happens next? Sure. I mean, I'm speechless. What, well, what, what happens after you that? You know, like you, I watched it unfold on Facebook, and frankly, the whole thing made me sad Ugh. to see a family implode that way. Um, and it, it, it felt very sad to me because it, it's it's not worth it. I mean, this is politics. Oh, like, God, it was um, so bad. But it sort of really spoke to me to the lack of civility in politics in Rockland, which has been my experience. I, I think that, um, you know, the political establishment certainly has 
has been uh, pretty harsh, um, certainly not welcoming to a new person entering the fold or trying to to uh, become engaged. You know, that I know as much as you do about the actual case and whether or not it's true, but I think, you know, that's what we're talking about in terms of what needs to change in Rockland. If that's true, then obviously that's exactly what needs to be changed. So it's not all just about one part of our community. It's about public holding public officials accountable. Right. You know, they represent us, and they have to be accountable to the people they represent. And, you know, if, if that's true, I, get, I heard it was, or they, someone said that it was referred to the DA's office, it should be. Okay. That's what should happen. Right. Right, and maybe the DA's office has to refer it out to a different DA's office because of a conflict. I don't know. Right. But those kinds of cases have to be investigated. That's, you know, that's what is rumored to have been going on in Rockland free, forever. Right. right? I so mean, it's par for the court. Uh, every, like, appointment, you know, where it's this, like, plum position, like, you're the whatever, you're the, you know, the guy that does the sanitation bags or you're the... You know, the guy that does the salt or you're the guy that, you know, that does the travel bureau. I mean, I've been hearing ever since I moved here that those are all just like favors, you know, returning favors. And they're all just like patronage, nepotism, that kind of stuff. And that it's been pretty much just, you know, an open secret. It is. You know, having worked in the county and uh, and around the county, it's certainly something I've seen. Um, I, I think what you're saying is not untrue. Right. Um, you know, and those are jobs that should be open to everyone in the county. You know, there's no reason that they should go as patronage. Right. You know, um, but that is, again, why we need to break up things in this county. And I think I'm going to circle back to it. I'm going to pivot back to the idea that I am the only person who can do that because I'm not part of the machine. Both of my opponents have been part of the fabric of that machine <laughs> for a long, long time. And, and that's what really separates me from them. Uh, and my experience on top of that, I think, you know, uh, those, that's a really important combination to have here. Because I'll say it again, this is not a job for someone who doesn't know how to do it. And with no dis- disrespect to Tom Walsh, you know, he sat as a judge and he does have experience. But there's a difference with sitting on the bench and, and, and sitting with a victim or a mother whose child's been sexually abused. And there's a, there's a big difference, right? So, uh, you know, I know how to do it from the shoes of a DA. I right. was a DA. Mm-hmm. As, as In my role as a special prosecutor, I was a district attorney. I had just jurisdiction with all 62 electeds across the state over a narrow classification of cases. I worked all over the state. I went into right. t- tons of courtrooms, um, and I, I represented uh, and, and uh, advocated for some of the most vulnerable people in our state. Um, and so while he has experience, you know, what experience is it, and what does that mean when you have, you know, when you're comforting uh you know, Victims. the mother of someone who's yeah. who's been killed, or right. by in whatever manner. It's, yeah, <laughs> right. it's the toughest thing uh, you you could imagine. Right. When that happens, I mean, to me, it's just. I mean, if he's really not a Republican and he's going to run on the Republican line on the party of Trump, with everything that's going on, it just seems to me like, you know, it's going to be you know, pretty easy to say, all right, look, if you're running under the party of Trump, you, you need to go on the record here. You know, do you agree with these, you know, policies of immigration? We round people up or, you know, a Muslim ban. I mean, all of this like crazy stuff. But I guess that's, you know, for November, I guess that's for November. Right now we're dealing with a, a, the Democratic primary. Um, I had a question on, on uh, discovery reform. Sure. Um, I know that there's been, uh, it's up in Albany, it's been moving through committees and they're tr- they might be getting closer and closer to changing the way that discovery works. Could you explain that? I, d- I, I don't understand the whole thing. And if something does happen, uh, how that would change things? Sure. Under the current laws, prosecutors are not required to give over often very important material to the defense until very late in the game. Um, that said, I was trained in the Brooklyn DA's office. I spent my first five years as a prosecutor in Brooklyn. which was that is Hines? I was under Charles Hines, okay. who even back then was one of the most progressive uh, prosecutors in the country. Mm-hmm. And we were trained, uh, and I was trained from day one, uh, to engage in what's called open file discovery. I always have. I have always turned over discovery oh. as soon as I've had it. That is not the policy or was not the policy of the, of the DA's office here. Um, so I think what it means is, you know, when w- 
when you have information about a case in order for a defendant to prepare their case or to assess whether or not they're going to take a plea, how right. strong is the case against or, them. Or whether or, not, or whether or not they could be pressured into taking, taking a, plea, a plea, right? right. Like, so, we have this on you, but, but we're not going to tell you, you know. <laughs> right, and I have never engaged in that kind of practice. Well, so it but sounds some, like the law would be catching up to you, how you've been practicing in the past. Uh, yes, there's, okay. some, there's some things, I believe, that are being talked about in Albany that would require prosecutors to do, to do something that I, I think, I'm not sure where they're at on this, but in terms of disclosing, you know, we do redact and we do maintain the privacy of victims. So, you know, I or do have... Or informants, too? Well, informants, you have to, right? Okay. <laughs> so, um, so those, obviously... Those are issues that would be brought before a judge if those discovery reforms come down. But it's very important when we look at discovery reforms to make sure the prosecutors are giving over everything that they can while at the same time protecting the rights of a victim right. and, and their privacy. Right. So, you know, to say if a woman's uh, been subjected to a violent rape, that the pr- that the defendant in her case is going to be given her address and the opportunity right, right. to inspect the premises within 15 days, you know, Ugh. I don't really agree with that, right? right, right but right. I, I think there are ways to get to a place where the defense can be prepared uh, without doing that to a victim. And I, and I think there are you know, that's an extreme case. Yeah. So I think, you know, I believe in open file discovery. I believe in, in making sure that uh, defense attorneys on behalf of their clients have what they need to make decisions with their clients. I right. think that's very important. Okay. Um, so is, is the DA's office, um, co- could it be complaint driven in a case like, you know, where, where there's multiple people in the county that say, Hey, I mean, uh, uh, here's another issue is the, uh, I get these robo calls. Oh my God. I, my landline, it's like nothing good ever on that landline right. anymore. I mean, I feel like just getting rid of it. You know, whenever you pick it up, it's like some recording and it's really annoying. I'm on the do not call list. They're starting to come on people's cell phones too. Are, um, you know, can, can, can just regular people make a complaint that, that could trigger something? Is that like not in the DA's purview or is yeah, that some no. kind of other jurisdiction? Yeah, that's more of a federal issue because those calls are coming generally from out of state and Mm -hmm. often we don't even know where they're coming from. And I know that this is being taken up uh, in Washington. You know, here in Rockland, we we enforce the role of the district attorney is to enforce the New York State penal law. So if it's in the penal law, we can look at it, we can see if it applies, and we can potentially prosecute it or look to prosecute it. But it really has to be within the confines of the penal law. It's, uh, you know, that's the job of the DA, to enforce the law and to ensure public safety in doing that. And again, use your vision, your creativity to prevent crime when you can. Um, And I think there are lots of ways to also do that, to shift into a model where we're both prosecuting and doing as much as we can to prevent. Right. Well, we're just coming up on uh, 8 o'clock. Um, I want to thank you for stopping by. I learned a lot. I appreciate uh, you know you taking the time. I want to say that uh, if any other candidate is listening and they want you know to uh, respond or they want you know to have time on the air, go to newyorkupdate.org and send me a message and you know you could also but Patricia, it's been really uh, interesting and uh, we, we wish you luck with the uh, primary. Thanks for having me. All right, thanks. Thanks. So this has been New York Update. You can catch us Tuesdays at 7 p.m. And we are live at rocklandworldradio.com. You can see all the archives just by going to nyupdate.org. Now, you do need to have a Facebook to get that because it goes right to the Facebook page. But if you don't, you can go to our Twitter feed. And that's, instead of NY Update, it's Update NY on Twitter. So you can go to Update NY and you can see all the past archives there. So signing off for this week, it's Jake Jacobs, and we want to thank Richard, as always, from Rockland World Radio. We will see you next week. It's not just radio, it's Rockland World Radio. Rocklandworldradio.com